Let me encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you at Mark chapter 1. And of those verses that we read just earlier, this morning we're going to go as far as verse 39. And then, God willing, this evening, uh, we'll pick things up at verse 40 with the account of the leper who comes and speaks to Jesus. So, this morning from verse 21 through to verse 39. And what we see standing out very starkly, very clearly in these accounts of the gospel writer is that Jesus is like no other. He's like no other. The Gospel of Mark is less than half the size of Luke's Gospel. And by comparison, in a rapid and quick fire way, he takes us on a whistle-stop tour through the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. It's almost as if he doesn't allow us to pause for breath He takes us from one scene and event to another in order to provide us again and again with all kinds of examples of the different aspects of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Mark wants you to see who Jesus is. And he brings us many different facets of what was seen and heard from Christ before us in a very short space of time. He wants you to come to the only sane and rational conclusion as to the identity of Jesus Christ, who this man Jesus was and is, why he came, and the kind of response that that demands from you. What was the purpose of Jesus coming into the world? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know why he came? More importantly, do you know him personally for yourself? Well, the Bible is where you begin. And the Bible is where you remain, if you want to know. Now, one of the first points that Mark brings to our attention is the authority that Jesus had. There was was a unique authority in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the likes of which the people had never encountered before. And in the opening chapter, that authority is brought to our attention in three different ways. So that's going to be the first point this morning, the authority of Christ. The next thing that Mark points out is that Jesus is a man of prayer. And in the opening chapter, he makes a point of highlighting that occasion that he remembered, probably through the Apostle Peter. We believe Peter was the main reference point for Mark in all that he wrote the place that Jesus gave to prayer. And then thirdly, the place of preaching in the ministry of Jesus. Authority, prayer, and preaching. So first of all, authority. 
the authority that was seen in this man that made him stand out from everybody else. And the first aspect of his authority came from his teaching. We see that in verses 21 and 22. They were astonished at his teaching. They'd never heard the likes before. Now, it would be the rabbis and the scribes who taught in the synagogues ordinarily. The rabbis were famous for debating and quoting one another. They would go all round the houses offering opinions and theories and ideas. Here's this piece of scripture. Well, so-and-so says it means this, and so-and-so says that, and so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says the other. They would recall what had been taught by those who'd gone before. But few would ever dare to suggest or teach that they had the definitive understanding as to what this passage of scripture means. But that's what Jesus was doing. He would read a passage of scripture and he would say, now I say to you, they never heard that before. Rarely, if ever, would a rabbi stand and say such a thing. But Jesus was. Jesus was standing and saying, lay aside what anyone else has ever said on this topic. All you need is what I have to say. And some might think, well, how, how can any man be so bold? Others might even think, well, how can any man be so arrogant? But you see, in Jesus, they've discovered something altogether different. And what they saw in Jesus wasn't arrogance. What they saw in Jesus was authority. There's a very big difference between those two things, isn't there? A man who stood and taught with authority and with command. A man who said, it is this. A man who would open the scripture and declare its meaning. From Jesus they heard, this is what it does mean. Not, this is what it could mean. There is authority in this voice that is speaking to them. And there was an authority in Christ in that he was able to convince his listeners of the truth. They came out believing him. Now in Genesis chapter 1, we read there the account of God creating the universe creating this world and everything that's in it. When God did that, he didn't break out his cosmic toolkit and roll up his sleeves. He didn't use any physical means himself at all. After all, God is spirit. So in himself... He has no physical attributes as we understand them in our bodies. God is spirit. So how did God create? Not with hands. He simply spoke. 
He spoke. And such is the authority in God's spoken word that everything you see around you was made simply by him speaking it into existence. Now, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus is the eternal word and that Jesus was instrumental in that work of creation. His voice was the voice that spoke. That's the voice these people are listening to. That's why they are left astonished at what they're hearing. They've never heard the likes of this. Well, they haven't, have they? It's John, of course, who records that wonderful verse in which Jesus declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. They're hearing the voice of the man who is in himself the truth. The people are listening to God speaking in the voice of Jesus. No wonder they were amazed. And it wasn't just about the content of what he said. It was the authority with which he gave it that impacted them. Astonished. No one left that synagogue daring to argue with him. Daring to contradict him. How can it be anything other than what this man has just spoken? It struck them to the core. The authority with which Jesus was speaking. And he was making sense of things to the people. He was making sense of things to them. They weren't astonished and up in arms because it was so out of this world that it was causing them to be angry. That's not the kind of astonishment that's there. They kept coming back for more. We need to hear more of this man. And here's the thing. Today, you ought to have exactly the same view of the Bible. And as a church, where as we meet week by week, each Lord's Day, Wednesday evenings, we need to be praying earnestly, Lord, speak to us today like that, through your word, by your spirit. Speak to us. The same Jesus is speaking through his word. This is God's word. This is the word. We should be astonished every time we read the Bible. We should be astonished every time we come under the word of God in whatever form. We should pray for it. Lord, astonish me today from your word. Through this word we hear Jesus speaking still. 
Now, of course, in the world in which we live today, the world wants to insist that truth is something that's malleable and flexible. You can play around with truth. You can twist it. You can reshape it. Truth, says the world, well, it's like plasticine in the hands of a child. You can make it into this today. But tomorrow, if you decide you've changed your mind, you can scrunch it all up and make it into something else. That's what the world does with truth. It's changing constantly. They're always deciding that something else is the truth. Today, truth is this. But tomorrow, if it doesn't suit us, that's okay. We'll just throw that to one side and we'll, we'll establish some new truth. And we'll follow that. That's what the world does with truth. But what we're reminded of as we see these people as they're coming under the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is a place of utter and total unchanging truth. There is a place of unchallenged authority. And he is called the word of God. Unchanging truth. Unchallenged authority in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see his authority in his command over demons, verses 23 through to 27. Now, the Bible pulls no punches in the existence of a very real spiritual world, not a physical world, a spiritual world, a world in which there is both goodness and holiness, of which God is the centre and the source, but also a world of wickedness and evil, of which Satan is the origin and source. Um, it seems very clearly as we read the New Testament scriptures, particularly as we make our way through the Gospels, uh, that with the arrival of Christ into the world, there seems to be a rise in demonic activity as he steps into the world. A bit like the activating of a cancer in the body. Everywhere he goes, there are these demons in opposition. In this spiritual realm, the fallen forces of evil have risen up and they're rebelling against the Creator in a very particular way, it seems. And they do so even though they know they can never win. Because we note their response when they're, when they're confronted with Christ. Are you about to destroy us? But that's the nature of sin, isn't it? Sin in its arrogance, even though, even though it cannot win against God, still rises up against him, still challenges him, still rebels against him, even though it knows it cannot win. And, and these demons, when they're confronted by Christ, well, they, they know they've arrived at their Waterloo, don't they? To coin a phrase. They know this is a battle they're not going to win. We know who you are, they say. It's interesting, isn't it? That happens numerous times. We, we know who you are. This is the one against whom in eternity past they rebelled. 
This is their creator who they've turned their backs on. This is the one who threw them out of heaven. They know who he is. That God for a time continues to permit evil to exist and to have an influence in this world is something of a mystery, even for Christians, let's be honest. Something of a mystery to us that God would permit evil to continue in the way it does. But we do know certain things from the Bible. We know that all evil is under the authority of God. We know that evil can never go further than God permits it. The Bible clearly teaches that even wickedness is fulfilling God's purposes in the world. And the Bible teaches that the day is coming when he will bring to an end all evil. The entire demonic realm will come to its day of final judgment and enter into eternal punishment. It isn't always going to continue this way. That much we do know. And in Christ we take great comfort in observing the command that he exerts over these demonic forces. They do not stand a chance. They are powerless to resist him. That's a great encouragement for us as believers. Because we can feel ourselves sometimes surrounded by all kinds of evil, can't we? But Christ is over it all. And they're powerless against him. He even closes their mouths so that they cannot speak of him. Because Christ isn't yet ready to have revealed fully who he is. He'll do that according to his own timetable and in his own good way. And he won't permit these evil spirits to jump the gun and declare him. And so they can't. And he shuts their mouths as easily as he was able to close the mouths of the lions in the den that Daniel was thrown into. If God wants to close a mouth, he'll close it. You and I face great evil in the world. And as, as Christians, sometimes that evil will be intensified against us for no other reason than we are those that praise and exalt the name of Christ. And just as we saw evil rise up in Palestine when Christ was around, it will be the case that sometimes evil will rise up against the Lord's people even today. But all, all the evil that Satan can muster cannot overthrow the reign of Christ. And the Lord who indwells you, if you are a Christian, is this same Jesus in whose presence the demons tremble. Now, does that make you immune to Satan's attacks? No, it doesn't. He'll still have a go. Does, but it does make it impossible for Satan to destroy you. Can't destroy you. Does it mean that you will never suffer when Satan attacks? No, it doesn't. Christians will suffer just as our Saviour suffered. But it's always restricted. It's always held in check by the Lord. 
And you have God's promise that you'll never be, t- you'll never be taken to a point where you cannot endure it. Never. And the day is fast approaching when you will be there on the victory side if you're in Christ. And you will watch that evil realm being brought to its end and being brought to a close. And it will forever be to the praise and glory of God's name. And ultimately, that is what it's all about. It's all to the praise and glory of God's great name. And Christ has complete command and control over the demonic world. You can be assured of that as a believer. One who is in Christ. And we see Christ's authority in another way and that's in his healing of the sick. And that's particularly brought to our attention initially in verses 29 to 34. First of all with Peter's mother-in-law and then with many others who are brought to him. It's the end of a long day and word is getting around and more and more people are being brought to Christ and they're being healed. Because Christ exerts total control over the world which he has made. And just as he was able to speak it into into existence, in most cases, he only has to speak and the healing comes. Such is the authority and power of his word. And as we'll see shortly, this isn't actually one of the main reasons why Jesus came into the world. Which is why the the miraculous healing of the sick is a relatively short-lived thing in the history of the church. The apostles were granted this miraculous gift also, but only for a time. Within a few short decades, it was gone. Now, let me just say something at this point. Don't confuse the gift of being able to command healing with praying for the healing of the sick. They are two very different things. One is the gift to command healing. It's a gift. The other is to pray for healing. They're not the same. Neither should you conclude that in saying that the gift of healing is no longer around, you don't conclude that we believe that God no longer heals the sick. Because we believe that God most certainly can heal the sick. And he does so whenever it pleases him to do it. And sometimes he'll do it in answer to our prayers. But that's not the same thing as being able to command healing like Jesus did. That's not the same thing as being able to command healing as the apostles could for a time. Silver and gold have I none. Such as I have give I unto you. Let me pray for you. No. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. That's the gift of healing. It's commanded and it happens there and then. And it's immediate. That's not praying for healing. That's the gift of healing. That's not around today. But we still do believe that God heals. And we pray for it. But don't confuse the two. But Christ, he can heal. 
broken, sick, dying human bodies responding to the spoken command of Christ and being fully restored, fully restored in front of hundreds, thousands of witnesses again and again and again. There's an authority in Christ that is undeniable. Jesus is like no other. What authority resides in this man? Because he is God. And yet as a man, secondly, we see him resorting to prayer. Oh, how Jesus needs to pray. Verse 35. It's interesting that Mark chooses to mention that in the opening chapter. When you're going through a bad patch as a Christian, might it be that prayer is one of the first disciplines to fall by the wayside? I know from talking to some people that 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 is what happens. I feel so bad I can't pray. And if anyone were to challenge you, you might find yourself saying, well, when I feel stronger again, then I'll start praying again. Look at the life of Jesus. We find many examples when he spends hours and hours in prayer. And when the going gets tough, he spends even longer in prayer. He doesn't abandon prayer because it's getting difficult. He spends even more time in prayer because it's getting difficult. Here's a man whose communion with the Father is unbroken. And as a man, Jesus communes with his Father using the same means that all men and women are given to commune with God, which is prayer. He prays. And Jesus has got up in the middle of the night just to go and spend time alone in prayer. Before it's even started to get light, he's up and he's gone and he's out of the house. Communing with God is a vital part of human existence. And Jesus is fully man. And he needs that communion with his Father. And the way to do it as a man is to pray. And he prays. As a man, Jesus uses all the same means of grace that you have available to you. Prayer, the word of God, that's what he uses, that's what he does. This communion that we have with God, it's a vital part, it's a a unique aspect of our humanity. Animals don't and can't commune with God like you can, do they? You don't sit down and say grace with your dog when you give it its food. You can can thank God for the food and for your dog. Of course you can. The dog just wants to wolf it down. That's all it does. It's a dog. You're not like that, are you? There's this something inside you whereby you can commune with the living God. That's what he made you for. That's what he created you for. That's the breath that he breathed into Adam. So you can seek God's face in prayer. Seek God's will in prayer. Find God's strength and wisdom and grace in prayer. Worship and adore him in prayer. 
Beseech God in prayer that he would be at work, that he would accomplish all of his purposes. Declare to him your great need of him in prayer and put your trust in him. Confess your sins to him in prayer and seek his cleansing and his forgiveness in prayer. What well, great old saint called Samuel Chadwick, he said this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from your prayerless studies or your prayerless work or your prayerless religion. He laughs at your toil and he mocks at your wisdom, but he trembles when you pray. I think he was right. Why do we continually exhort you to attend the church prayer meetings? Because prayer is an essential part of your Christian walk. It's an essential part of our corporate life together. And it's exampled to us by our Lord himself who made time to pray. Set aside time to pray, even if it meant up even if it meant getting up at silly o'clock in the morning to do it. In living a life that is pleasing to God, prayer remains an essential component. We see it in the Saviour. And then finally, we see him preaching. Preaching. Verses 36 to 39 in particular. Preaching. Now we can see the compassion and mercy of Jesus as many are relieved of physical pain and suffering. But that wasn't the main reason why he came. It almost certainly was why all the people were looking for him. Here's a man who can improve your physical circumstances. Here's a man who can rid you of physical suffering and misery. And many of them want more and who wouldn't? But there's a far greater need that Jesus has come to address. And in his three years of earthly ministry, this is something of far greater importance than any of the miracles that he ever performed. There's a message that people need to hear. There is preaching for him to do. And the clamour for him in Capernaum must not be allowed to detract from his ministry of preaching. That's what he says himself in verse 38. Let's go somewhere else. Why? So that I can heal a whole load more people? No. So that I can preach because it's for preaching that I came. We don't think as much as we should of Jesus as the preacher. But he says, that's the main reason I've come. In terms of his three years of earthly ministry, preaching was what it was all about. Now the healings and the miracles are a confirmation of his authority. They're intended to make people realise we need to listen to what this man is saying. Because it's for preaching that Jesus came. The declaration of God's truth. The declaration of the gospel. Now let me ask you, what was the main message coming from the lips of Jesus in his preaching? Let me do a Stuart Olliot for a second. Let me press you for an answer. And we haven't got Eamon here to do it for you. What was the main message coming from the lips of Jesus in his preaching? Jesus 
and repent. Repent. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, so you're right, Carol, is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. Into chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus speaking, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What was the whole thrust and theme of all of the preaching of Christ? Sin and repentance. You're outside of the kingdom of God in your sin. Repent that you might come in. Chapter 2 introduces us to the story of the paralyzed man lowered lowered down through the roof of a house to meet Jesus. What's the first thing that Jesus deals with in that man? His sin. His sin. Then he sorts out his paralysis. His sin is his biggest problem. Not the fact that he cannot walk. The world would look at you like your head's on the wrong way round. What? No, his sin. That was the chief issue in this man's life. Not that he couldn't walk. The first priority for Jesus was not to give that man a better life. It was to give him a better death. I'm going to say that again. The main priority for Jesus was not to give that man a better life. It was to give him a better death. He would die a saved man. Not a condemned man. The the priority of Jesus was to change where and how that man would spend eternity. Not how he would live the rest of his days on this earth. Now how he will live the rest of his days on this earth will be changed. But that's not the priority. Never forget that. And never forget that this is our priority too in gospel preaching. What about your sin? Where are you going to spend eternity? That's the priority. The priority of the gospel is not about a better life in terms of your physical circumstances here on earth. The priority of the gospel is about being reconciled to God, restoring a broken relationship with God, securing your eternity with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And how is this to be conveyed? And how is this to be achieved? Through preaching. For this purpose I have come, said Jesus, to preach. What did he send out his disciples to do? To preach. What did he commission the whole church to do before he ascended into heaven? To go into the whole world and preach. The greatest need then is the greatest need now. Declaring God's truth. Declaring Christ declaring the gospel in him alone there is power and authority to forgive your sins to reconcile you to God and to provide you with security for all of eternity we're about to remember around the table the ground upon which such forgiveness 
is available. It's because he himself, at the end of those three years of preaching, would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin. Paying sin's penalty as the substitute for sinners. Rising again the third day to defeat sin and death forever and to guarantee your resurrection to everlasting life because he has already done it. And the one who did that and on account of what he did offers forgiveness to all. If you will turn in repentance from your sins and trust in him because in Christ and only in Christ is the authority to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all the things that are revealed of him in the scriptures. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would impress upon each one of us here our great need of the Saviour that you would encourage those who are your people of the security that they have in this Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has such authority, the one who now indwells them. And Lord, we pray that our hope indeed will be in him and in him alone. And impress upon us, O Lord, our great need to repent of our sins and to turn to Christ for salvation. Amen.